Morning, church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel about which we have sung and which we have celebrated in the Lord's Supper this morning. We are eager to open your word now, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would have his way with us through the text that we're going to consider. We pray that the Lord Jesus would be magnified in our eyes, in our minds, in our hearts, above all other influences, that His voice would be superior to all things, that we would be moved to love the gospel, because it is our story, the story of our great representative brother, through whose wounds we have been made right with you, and at His return we will Go with Him into glory. Father, we pray that as we study Your Word this morning, that we would be given understanding and that we would be helped to apply it rightly. We ask for Your help in these things, and we do so in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're not skipping chapter 1, we're we're actually going to look at chapter 1 verse 5 through the end of chapter 2, and please don't panic, Um, I'll explain in a moment why we're looking at such a large chunk of text, but to begin, we're going to read just the first four verses of chapter 2, so if you would. As you're finding your place there, stand with me and we'll read Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. You may be seated. Now, why would, why would somebody panic at a sermon text covering almost two chapters? We did that several times in Leviticus. Nobody ever complained. Well, it, at this rate, if we were to take all of Hebrews two, two chapters at a time, we'd be finished by, by the end of July. Well, don't worry. This series likely will not be over by the end of next July. So... So, so what are we doing this morning, looking at one five through the end of 2.18? Well, we're going to do something with, with Hebrews that we've never done before, 
and I can think of only one other book where, where I might plan to do the same thing. Hebrews is so dense and rich, and many of you have, have wanted to study it for so long that, that I just can't do a quick bird's eye view series on Hebrews. I want to go deep, and, and many of you have requested that we go deep into Hebrews. And so a, a quick flyby of Hebrews would leave so much meat on the bone in my view, and, and I really don't think that that's even the right move for our congregation, for, for where we are as, as, a, as a local people of God. The, the problem, or a problem, that, that we can find when we go super deep into a book is that, that we're in danger of missing the forest for the trees. You can get so focused on the particulars that you lose your sense of the context of a book, and so you can finish a deep expositional series without a strong sense of the overall argument of a book and the flow of thought. And at the end of a series like that, you may, you may remember a couple of messages that, that might have been particularly helpful, but the overall message of the book is, is hazy at best. And I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. At the same time, I don't want to miss the trees for the forest. And so I'm planning to bring overview messages each time we come to a new section of the book. And so today what that means is that we're looking at the big picture of 1.5 through 2.18. And then Lord willing, we're going to come back and do messages on the smaller chunks of that section. Digging in deeper. And Lord willing, when we get to the next section, chapters 3 and 4, I'll preach a message on on the flow of thought through that larger section before digging in deeper to the smaller chunks of that section. And in the end, this approach will add, it'll only add about a month to the overall length of the series. And I believe that the messages on the smaller chunks will then be more helpful to you when you have a a good understanding of the larger sections in which they're found. I do reserve the right to, to reverse course on that plan, but for now that's what that's what I intend to do. Now remember that the main temptation for the original recipients of Hebrews, given the pressure that was on them from the world, was to shrink back from faithful discipleship to Christ and to return to the relative safely of relative safety of Old Testament Judaism. And so what the author does is that he repeatedly puts Jesus next to elements of Old Testament Judaism, and he shows that Jesus is both the fulfillment of those older revelations of God and the superior final revelation of God. And he begins in this first section, 1.5 through 2.18, by showing that Jesus is a better messenger and a better message. The Son's superior person and work Make it absolutely essential that believers cling to Him rather than the former message spoken through angels. Now, we, in our modern context here in the West, we don't have the exact same temptation. Now, there, there may be an exception among us this morning that I'm not aware of, but, but, but we did not come from Orthodox Judaism. And so, um, among us, there, there really is no temptation for us to revert to the Old Covenant. And so, if I were to just preach straight through this text this morning and to conclude with, so, 
don't trust in angels. I, I think likely most of you would say, don't worry. We're not going to. It's not a problem for us. Unless perhaps one or two of you fell for that thing a, a decade or so ago where, where some people kind of fell into angel worship. But if you're not there, then, then, then likely just a straightforward application of this text is going to be something that's, that's a little foreign to us in our context. We don't need, likely, to, to, to see Christ magnified relative to angels and the message of angels. But, most of us likely do need to see Jesus magnified relative to something. Something that has captured our attention, captured our trust, our devotion. Even if we would call that something unbelief. And so what what we're going to do is we're going to follow the author's argument through chapters 1 and 2 this morning. And as we do, we're going to consider what is the appropriate application for us in each each one of our lives. And and I have prayed for you all week and and this morning that that as we're going through this, the Holy Spirit would 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 speak to you, each one of you individually, so that you will know If it's not angels for me, then what is it? What influence is it about which I need to see Christ magnified so that He is supreme to me, His message is supreme to me, and I'm clinging to the gospel instead of this whatever. Okay? So let's think about the argument. The first step in the the author's argument in this first section is that the Son is superior to angels. The Son is superior to angels. You may recall from last week that in verse 4, the author wrote that the Son has become as much superior to angels as the name that He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so now let's read all of 1.5 through 1.14. So we're going to read the rest of chapter 1. For, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who who are to inherit salvation? So even just a cursory reading, we see that he he is setting Jesus against the angels and showing Jesus as a son and angels as ministering spirits under the sun. They worship the sun. 
and they serve you. Now, a question that we want to consider, first of all, is why does he do this? Why argue that the Son is superior to angels? Now, some have suggested that he talks about angels here because the people in this original context, they may have been tempted to say, well, following Jesus is pretty countercultural these days. We're getting into trouble for it. And we could just trust in angels to save us from our enemies because they're very powerful. And they did a lot of really cool stuff in our Hebrew Scriptures. Remember how just one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. So we could just go back to that. We could just go back to trusting them. Well, that likely is not why the author brings up angels. It likely is not that the people were tempted to trust angels as some kind of army against their enemies. But rather, if we glance back over to chapter 2, 2 verses 1 through 4, we're reminded again that the author, the author compares the message of angels with the message declared by the Lord. And, the, and again, the message declared by the Lord, we're going to find, is, is the gospel. So, so what's at stake here is, is a question of which messenger's message is worthy of greater attention and devotion. The author of Hebrews, just, just like Paul in Galatians 3.19 and Stephen in Acts 7.53, all, all, all three of these guys, they teach that the law, or, or we could say the Old Covenant, was delivered through angels. Now, an important thing to note is that this idea that, the, that, that angels delivered the law, this is actually nowhere taught in the Old Testament. Okay? But Paul, Stephen, the author of Hebrews, they teach it likely because of what, what we refer to as intertestamental Jewish writings. These Jewish writings that were written between the end of the Old Testament and, and the beginning of the New Testament. And some of these books that have these kinds of things in it, they're, they're books like First Enoch, Second Baruch, Fourth Ezra, books like these, these intertestamental books, they depict angels as messengers of God delivering the law of God. And the idea in some of these books is, Look, if, if angels are delivering these messages rather than mere men, then we need to listen because of the stature of these heavenly beings. Now, these intertestamental books, by definition, are not biblical books, which means that they're not inspired. At the same time, they are not evil. They're actually helpful to us as historical records in that they help us to understand what Jews and, and perhaps early Jewish Christians believed at one time or another. Now, just, just as an aside here, should it trouble us that these biblical authors, Hebrew, uh, the author of Hebrews and Paul and Luke, who, Luke, who's recording the words of Stephen in, in Acts 7, should it trouble us that these biblical authors are teaching something that they didn't get from the Old Testament, but that they got from the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha. Should that trouble us? Well, no, it shouldn't trouble us because this detail that angels delivered the law, this is recorded in the New Testament. And so we can know that that particular thing is true. The fact that the Holy Spirit moved these men to record this detail in three places in the inspired New Testament means that 
It's true that angels delivered the law in some way. And so we ought not be uh, dealing with heartburn at all right now. Because at three places the Holy Spirit says, this is true. Anyway, that's why He brings up angels in chapter 1. The, the old life to which these original recipients are tempted to return, the, and an old life that we might call Old Covenant, it was delivered through angels. And so the, the author begins by taking the lion's share of chapter 1 to show from the Old Testament that the Son is superior to the angels. Seven Old Testament quotations establish the status of the Son and the status of angels relative to the Son. And we'll go over these seven Old Testament references more closely in a future message, including how the author of Hebrews arrives at his, at his interpretation of these Old Testament references. But just understand, in, in terms of flow of thought, that's what's going on here. He's not attacking angels. He's not saying, angels are nothing. He's actually going to validate their message in 2.2. But the, but, the, but the idea that he's getting at is, let's get our heads on straight about the relative status of the deliverers of these two covenants, angels versus Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. Angels worship Him, verse 6, and angels serve you, verse 14. So he's seeking to put angels and Jesus in their proper place in the minds of the readers. Now, as we stay, take a step back then to, to think about what we might do with these things, how we might apply them, let, let, let's consider what, what, what figure, what, what earthly influencer, what things, source of information, wisdom, what are you tempted to hold in inordinately high esteem? What for you is analogous to angels in this text? You, 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 it may not come to you immediately. If, if not, then I would encourage you that this afternoon and, and this week as you're spending time with the Lord, just pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you that if there is anything, what is it? What is that, that thing, that voice, that influence that's analogous to angels here? That, that might be inordinately important to me relative to Christ. What is it? And think to yourself then, if Jesus is greater than angels, how then can He not also be greater than any other created thing, including whatever that thing is for you? Even if it's your own reason, or any philosophy of the world, how can Jesus not be greater? Now, having established that that the Son is superior to the angels, the author then moves on to the second step of his argument in this section. And that second step of the argument is, therefore, the Son is worthy of greater devotion. Therefore, the Son is worthy of greater devotion. And we find that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let's read those verses again. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the author uses a style of argumentation that would have been very familiar to, to Jews of his day. It's an argumentation called from the lesser to the greater. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's established that Jesus is greater than the angels. And so now he, he's essentially saying, so then let's think about what that means for their representative messages. The message of the angels was the law. That message was reliable or binding, and, and therefore anyone who disobeyed it was punished. Now, now some of us have, have some familiarity with the Old Testament. The original recipients of, of Hebrews, they were very familiar with the Old Testament. God didn't just let people walk away from the Old Covenant. You, you couldn't just enter that covenant with God and then, and then just decide, you know what, I'm out. I'm going to do my own thing now. You know, worship other gods, kill people, commit adultery, sacrifice my children. I'm going to walk my own path now. God didn't let that happen. He pursued those people. He called on them over and over to repent. And when they didn't, there was judgment in spades. And that was a covenant delivered Just by angels, is what he's saying. Christ is far greater than the angels. Therefore, His message, the Gospel, must be that much greater than the message delivered by angels. And if disobedience to their message brought judgment, how much more so will disobedience to the Gospel bring judgment? That's what he's saying in verses 1-4 through in chapter 2. And this is the heart of this first section of Hebrews. Don't drift away from the gospel. The consequences will be far worse than our fathers experienced when they drifted away from the old covenant. And this, this, exhort, this exhortation here in verses 1 through 4, it's the whole reason that he spends so much time establishing the relative greatness of Christ compared to the angels in chapter 1. Chapter 1 was not just. Christology for the sake of Christology. It's all building up to this exhortation in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Magnify Christ, magnify Christ, chapter 1, so that this, this exhortation in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, so that it really hits home. And it does give us a glimpse of how the author in the rest of the book weaves exposition, like in chapter 1, with exhortation, like in chapter 2, verses 1-4. through four. And he's going to do this over and over in Hebrews. We could jump over to chapter 3 and 4. If you want to just glance over there, you could do that. At the beginning of chapter 3, the author starts to expose the relative greatness of Christ to Moses. And then he goes right into exhorting the people regarding Pursuing a better rest in chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 5, he begins an exposition of Christ's superior priesthood. And then goes right into an exhortation in chapter 6. It happens over and over and over. But right here, Christ brings a superior message. 
to that delivered by angels. And if the fathers couldn't walk away from the message delivered by angels and escape judgment, then you certainly can't drift away from the message delivered by a superior messenger and escape judgment. Now, let's then go back to that influence that's vying for your attention. Again, again, it likely isn't angels, but what is it? Whatever figure or source of information or, 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 or wisdom that you're tempted to heed, as opposed to heeding the message of Christ, those, those voices around us, they tend to say things like, listen, if, if you don't do what I say, there's going to be consequences. If, if, you, if you are determined to follow Jesus, instead of following me, Bad things are going to happen to you. People are going to ostracize you. If you don't live my way, you won't have any money. You won't have any friends. You'll lose your job. You'll end up on the wrong side of history. Or whatever. I mean, there's a thousand things that that, that, that voice will say. But what it is proclaiming is consequences. There will be consequences if you don't follow me. Now, understanding that Jesus is superior to that influence, how can the consequences of rejecting His call not also be greater than rejecting the consequences of that lesser voice that's appealing to you even now? Do you think that you can turn from Him to that lesser influence? Turn to that lesser influence with your life, your attention, your devotion, your obedience. And escape the consequences. Do you think that's possible? The author of Hebrews is saying it isn't. It's the whole argument here in chapters 1, moving into chapter 2. So, again, backing up into chapter 1, the Son is superior to angels. Coming into chapter 2, therefore the Son is worthy of greater devotion. And the third step in in the argument, then moving into the rest of chapter 2, is for... The Son opens the way for believers to rule the coming world. The Son opens the way for believers to rule the coming world. And here he gets into the message itself, showing just how the message is better and why it should move the reader to cling to Christ in faith. So now we're going to read the rest of chapter 2, all right? We're going to read the whole thing, beginning in Hebrews 2, 5. 4. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful to him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is himself able to help those who are being tempted. Now, we've talked about chiasms in the past. There's not a chiasm here in chapter 2, but there is an inclusio. An inclusio is like a chiasm's little brother. You you could think of an inclusio as, as like a set of bookends on either side of a passage that frame a passage and help us to understand what it's talking about. In verse 5, you glance down at verse 5, glance at verse 16. Verses 5 and 16 are an inclusio. Verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. That's the first bookend. And verse 16, for surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. That's the second bookend. And these bookends confirm that the small, this smaller section, verses 5-18, through 18, relate to the larger section regarding the superior message and messenger who is Christ compared to the angels. Okay? Now in verse 5, if we look there again. Verse 5, he talks about this world to come. Now, glance back over at 114. The world to come in verse 5 is synonymous with the inherited salvation in 114. Because, you see, for the author of Hebrews, salvation is yet to come. It's a world or a land yet to come. And this is, this is a broad New Testament theme. We have been saved in one sense, and yet in another sense, we are awaiting salvation. We're awaiting salvation in the sense that we are awaiting Christ's return, and we're awaiting our entry into an eternal promised land. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about the world to come. We're, we're, we're awaiting Christ's return, return so that we can enter where He is within, in that eternal promised land. So, in chapter 2, verses 1-4, through four, He exhorts the recipients to cling to the message of Christ as opposed to the message of angels. In verse 5, He's getting into, into that superior content of the message itself, giving another reason not to trust angels over Jesus. And so here he's saying, look, don't trust angels. It's not angels who are going to reign over the world to come. So who will reign over that world to come? The answer might surprise us. The author uses Psalm 8 to argue that God has not planned for angels to to rule over this eternal promised land, but God has planned for man to reign over that eternal promised land. Man. That's, that's part of the gospel. God's plan is and always has been for man 
created in God's image to rule as his representatives over all things. The problem is, as as we've found so many times in in Genesis chapter 3, the problem is that man rebelled against God and became a slave of sin and death. Now, does that mean that, that God's plan is going to be thwarted? No. God intended to crown man with glory and honor, according to Psalm 8. And we find here in Hebrews 2.10 that that God confirms that He will still do so. He is going to bring many sons to that glory. How is He going to do that? He tells us here in in, in verses 5-18. through He's going to do that by sending someone to save man from sin and death by suffering death on their behalf. And guess who that someone is? It's the God-man that he's been magnifying in chapter 1, Jesus Christ. The eternal Son took on human flesh and blood so that he could die in the place of man, freeing man from sin and death. Now, the, the author says, we don't now see that, that Psalm 8 reality. We don't see man reigning over all things. What we do see is man's representative brother, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor as a result of his vicarious death and resurrection. Jesus is currently enthroned. He is currently reigning over all things. And so the question then is, how is man going to join him? How is man going to join him in in reigning over all things? Well, that brings us again to verse 16. It is not angels that he, that, that Jesus helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Who does Jesus help? The offspring of Abraham. And, and, and we may hear other New Testament passages then, then ringing in our ears. Galatians chapter 3. You might write that down and you could read that later in your own time. Paul argues in Galatians chapter 3 that those who trust in Christ are Abraham's offspring. And so listen, if, if you and I would join Christ reigning over that eternal promised land, we must endure this current world trusting in Jesus, reconciling life, death, and resurrection until He comes. And the author in, in, in verses 17 and 18 here, he notes that Jesus is in the perfect position to help us endure this life because of what He's already suffered. He is perfectly equipped to help us make it through the difficulties of of this world, putting pressure on us as, as as we seek to be faithful disciples. Jesus is perfectly equipped to help us endure in faith as we look forward to His return and our reigning with Him in the next world. So this this current smaller section, 2, 5 through 18, it relates directly to the larger section of 1, 5 through 2, 18 regarding the superiority of Jesus to the angels. The, the, the people were tempted to return to the old covenant, trusting in that angel-mediated message to save them. And here the author is arguing, don't trust in angels. Angels are not going to reign over the world to come, but you will if. You trust in Christ who helps not angels, but humans who trust in Him. The Son opens the way for believers to rule the coming world. So think again. 
Think again about whatever voice that is that is competing with Christ in your mind and heart today. That source of wisdom, source of information, what, that, that, that errant worldview that has been, has been picking at the back of your mind, calling you to live a certain way in order to be able to navigate the difficulties of this life on earth. Saying to you things like, do this in order to survive. If, if you don't, then this is going to happen. Listen, the gospel alone holds the truth that will see you through this life and into the next such that you will be freed from sin and death reigning alongside Christ in the eternal promised land. Listen to Colossians 2, verses 6 through 10. Sounds very much like what we've just studied. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 10. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. See, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul teaches the same basic message as the author of Hebrews, but with a broader application. Consider the reality of the person of Christ. Consider who He is. His superiority over all. And be rooted in Him. Cling to Him. And therefore, let His gospel be central to your thinking. Let let your mind and your heart steep daily in the good news so that your thinking, your affections, your actions are informed by its truth. And, and, and by that, see to it that you are not taken captive by worldly philosophies. Rather, be taken captive by Christ. Consider this. How, how central... How, how central to your daily thinking, your thought processes as you're going through your day, how central to your priorities, how you decide how to spend your time, how you decide what you're going to think about, what you're going to do, how central to that is Jesus? How central to your day is the Gospel? How central is Christ's incarnation? And by incarnation, I mean the whole thing. His his endurance of temptation. And His suffering on the cross. His victorious resurrection. His current enthronement. How is the totality of the incarnation, how central is that to to your successful endurance of, of this life as you wait for His return? In other words, how important to you to, to your survival to the end of this life, how important is that? To, to that is the fact that Christ has already gone before you and entered into glorious places. Do, do you think about what it means that your representative brother has already run the gamut and, and is therefore perfectly, perfectly placed to help you through it? And does that influence you to say, well, I'm going to trust Him. 
I'm going to listen to Him and not these other voices. Or are you tempted to look to something else as your help and your hope? And are you thereby imperiling your entry into the eternal promised land? Verses 5 through 14 in chapter 1. They argue that Christ is a superior messenger. And they, they say to us, appropriately elevate him to his rightful place in your mind and heart. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore, be of the conviction that clinging to him and his message. This is absolutely essential. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 18 says, here is that message. It's only through Him that you enter the promised land. As you look to eternity, desiring to enter that land, trust Him to reconcile you to God and to help you endure until He returns. In other words, listen, you can't afford, you cannot afford to be all about an inferior influence, bringing an inferior message that leads nowhere but judgment. Clear away whatever you need to clear away such that the superior, supreme figure in your life is Jesus and His message is the song of your life that you are singing in every part of your life as you look forward to His return. Now I'm going to pray here in a moment and then we're going to, we're going to observe a few moments of silence as we consider these things. And, and, and again, I, I encourage you during those few moments to pray that the Holy Spirit would, would help you to discern what, what is that influence in your life? What is it that is, that, is, that is nagging at you? Perhaps it's a loud thing and you already know what it is, but perhaps it's something so subtle that you have not even noticed it, pulling at the threads of the fabric of your thinking. Pray that the Holy Spirit would help you to discern that so that you can eradicate it and follow Jesus faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you for your word. We are so grateful for its clarity. We're so grateful for its timelessness. And we are grateful that it is true. We're grateful that Jesus lives. We're grateful that he's enthroned. We're grateful for all that he suffered successfully so that as our great high priest, he is perfectly, perfectly positioned to help us endure until he returns. Father, many of us, if not all of us right now, are battling some influence seeking to call us away from faithful discipleship. Some of us know exactly what that is right now. Some of us are enduring an influence that's so subtle we're not even aware of what it is right now. But I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would make it clear to us in the coming moments so that we could go to war. So that we could go to war by elevating Christ to His rightful position in our minds and hearts. We would cling to His message, that we would love the gospel, that we would look to Jesus as our high priest, helping us until He returns. Please help us in these coming moments. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.